0: We want to thank you for listening to audio from The Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, if you haven't done it already, please turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we will pick up in verse 17. 17. I've been going through John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress again. Uh, my family, actually an animated movie that came out, which is actually pretty good that we watched as a family, but I've been, again, reading the book again, trying to pick it back up again. It's one of those books, if you haven't read, you, you must, and you should continue to do it throughout your Christian life. Um, it's an allegory of the Christian life, is what it is, written by Bunyan from a prison cell where he was in prison for his faith. And from his sale, Bunyan really reflects upon the Christian life, and he provides us with what I think is a refreshing, biblical, and needed description of what following Jesus today looks like. Bunyan spells out for us so clearly in the book what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Both the cost associated and the reward, the gain. The main character of the book named Christian is described in the intro this way. I want to highlight this quote this morning. It says, A man there was, though some, though, though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. A man there was, though some did count him mad, the more he cast away, the more he had. As we noted last week, Jesus really does flip the wisdom of man upside down on its head. The kingdom of God confuses our man-made categories. Jesus illustrated this last week by uh, the, the, the way of saying that the status necessary that we must have to enter the kingdom of God is like that of a child. One who is considered to have no status at all. Jesus will initiate or really make this same point through the contrasting narrative of the rich young ruler, we go from a a small child last week to a rich young man this morning, in order really to rethink our understanding of the kingdom. And here's what I I, I want us to be to make sure we grab hold of this morning: that following requires just as much rethinking of our man-made categories. As it does to accept Jesus and come to Him initially. that we must rethink a lot of things in order to accept Jesus. The values of this world. What it means, success, failure. What does it mean to surrender? We must rethink all of those categories we've been talking about in order to accept Jesus. In order to come to Jesus. But the rethinking is not over. It just began. And the, the life of following Jesus will only make sense if we continue to rethink our man-made categories. You see, in the beginning of Bunyan's book, Christian leaves the city of destruction, the metaphorical life outside of Christ. And the wisdom of his friends is, why would you do such a thing? Why would you venture out beyond the city? We have everything we need here. And you have no idea what awaits you out there. It makes no sense to leave to the common man. Christian is considered a madman for leaving. But Christian does leave. And he begins his journey to the celestial city. And what begins it seems to be as soon as he kind of enters out beyond the gates of the destruction of city of destruction, it seems like it's going to be a very simple short walk to the celestial city. He can see a reflection of it. What begins like a seemingly easy short trek ends up being a long, difficult journey with trials and defeat all along the way. Christian is called to sacrifice much. It cost him much to leave the city of destruction. But in the end, he learns that it's all gain. A man there was, though some did count him mad. The more he cast away, he Had, And this morning we're going to be forced to consider the cost of the kingdom. The cost of following Jesus is going to confront us. To follow Jesus faithfully, we must be willing. We must rethink our man-made categories. And my prayer is that our text this morning will help us do that. And here's my main point this morning, if you want to write it down, that hopefully I'll unpack for you. Following Jesus requires prioritizing Jesus by trusting in His provision and His promise in the gospel. Following Jesus requires prioritizing Jesus. What does that look like? We trust in His provision and we trust His promise in the gospel. Mark chapter verse 17 pick up reading to us And as he was setting out on his journey a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him Good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said to him why do you call me good No one is good except God alone You know the commandments And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions in the age to come eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Lord Jesus, we we pause and we come again to a a hard passage of scripture, Uh, come to a a passage of Scripture, we must swallow not like a piece of milk chocolate, but like a hard candy. It is good, but we must be careful with it. Lord, I pray this morning by Your Spirit and through Your Word that You would help us see. You would help us see beyond what seem to be losses in coming to Jesus, which are actually the greatest gain we could ever have. And Lord, I pray for anyone who came in here this morning outside of the kingdom. That you would confront them by your word and through your spirit and draw them to yourself. Lord, for us who would want to be faithful. Lord, I pray you would again challenge us by your word. To consider the many differing ways we must rethink our categories to follow you. Submit our lives to You. And Lord, to be a faithful disciple for Your kingdom. Lord be with our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now our journey into Jerusalem continues this morning. As we follow Jesus towards the cross. We're almost there. Jesus will enter Jerusalem next chapter, chapter 11, and begin the final week of His life. And the disciples are on the way with Jesus, continuing to receive his focused instruction on discipleship. With just a a quick reading of the last few chapters, we recognize very quickly the disciples' inability to comprehend Jesus' words, Jesus' instruction, especially as it relates to the kingdom. We saw this last week, it'll be evident again this morning. Now, our narrative this morning flows directly out of last week's text where Jesus explained how no one can enter the kingdom apart from being like a child. All must come to Jesus with nothing. As a helpless child in total dependence on His grace. No one can earn the kingdom. The requirement for entrance is the same for everyone. Simple, childlike dependence on Christ is the only way. And accepting Jesus is nothing more than the first step in following Jesus. And to do that faithfully, there is a newness in our thinking I want us to consider this morning. It's really going to include three things. I want us to really consider the priority, a new provision, and a new promise. A new priority, a new provision, and a new promise. So, first in verses 17 through 22, following Jesus is the call to embrace a new priority. Following Jesus is the call, answering the call to embrace a new priority. As we noted, Jesus continues his march toward Jerusalem. And in verse 17, we find him being approached by a man of great wealth. We know that from verse 22. It says he has great possessions. Luke's retelling of this story, he's called a ruler. Matthew's account adds that he's young. Putting all three of these together explains this story's popular reference as Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. This guy was a a mover and a shaker. He shopped in La Jolla. He dined on India Street. He was well known. He was a man of power, affluence, and influence. And he had heard Jesus' teaching and he evidently was impressed by them. The text says... He was eager to engage the Son of God. He even ran up to Him. He comes quickly. But He also comes respectably. He ran up and knelt before Him, verse 17 says. He understood Jesus as a distinguished teacher. So this rich young ruler comes... I want us to note this 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 morning. This rich young ruler comes in the proper manner. He comes urgently. He comes humbly. And He comes to the proper person, Jesus. And He comes to ask... Asking really the proper question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or, or what must I do to receive eternal life? Now his description of Jesus is interesting. So much so, Jesus really challenges it with a clarifying question of his own. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jews referred to God as good, but never to one another. Calling a teacher or anyone else as good was virtually unheard of. This was extravagant language given the fact that this man understands Jesus as a teacher. So Jesus challenges him by essentially asking him, what are you saying? Don't you know that calling me good is to call me God? Jesus challenges, I believe, this man's shallow usage of language forcing him to consider what he's really saying. It's a sort of probing, I think, rhetorical question to get him thinking and set the stage for what follows. Now the man's question is important. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or how do I obtain eternal life? Is his question. Eternal life in the Bible equates the entrance into the kingdom. It's the it's the life of God and life with God. It's the realm of salvation. It's the right question. Though asked in the wrong manner. It implies, his question implies, the belief that eternal life is something that can be earned, that can be achieved. What must I do? He says. Now, it's been said that all religions of the world really fall into two categories. You can put all religions in the world in two categories either do or done. You have You're either saved and receive eternal life by what you do or by what another has done for you. Christianity is uniquely the second. Christianity is uniquely the done religion. Eternal life cannot be achieved. It has to be received as a gift based upon the work of another, based upon the work of God in Christ in the Gospel. You see, this man's starting point was wrong. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So while this rich young ruler has come in the proper manner, to the proper person, addressing the proper topic, he's going to leave sadly unwilling and unable to receive the answer which follows. Now, Jesus, why I said that I think Jesus' question back to him was a rhetorical question, because Jesus doesn't even give him time to respond. Jesus forces the conversation forward in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus speaks of the Ten Commandments here, recorded in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And particularly here, Jesus cites the last six addressing last six commandments addressing our relationships to our relationship to one another do not defraud is probably a rewording of the last commandment against covetousness but if you notice Jesus leaves out the commandments dealing with our relationship with god only addresses the commandments dealing with our relationship to one another which i think is especially important as we're going to see in a minute this young ruler comes wanting to know what he must do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus says, I'll tell you what you do. Keep and obey the will of God revealed in his perfect law. In verse 20, he responds, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Now, I don't think we should question this man's integrity here. I don't think we should beat him up here. He's probably right. He probably had honored and obeyed the law in an external sense. He, he had probably obeyed the external commands of the law. The Apostle Paul says something like this in Philippians chapter 3 verse 6. He describes himself prior to coming to Christ as blameless according to the law. So with respect to the outward demands of the law as taught by Jewish religion, I think this young man probably had kept them all since his youth. But in the intent of the law was never a matter of external conformity. So in verse 21, we read some of the most tender and loving strokes of mercy in the Bible. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And then we go from one of the loveliest verses in the Bible to one of the saddest in verse 21. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, before we jump in exactly to what Jesus is saying and really why he's saying it, I want us to notice how or the manner in which Jesus engaged this man. I think it's really, really important for us. And I think it's a model of ministry we don't need to miss. Jesus looked... At him. You're going to see that in a minute. He's going to look at him. And he's going to look later at the disciples. In other words, he saw this man. He saw this, him as a person. He saw a man created in the image of God. Created to enjoy the very glory of God. He saw him. Not just his sin. Not just a distraction to his day. It says Jesus was on his way. He saw a person, and because of this, he loved him, and how did he love him? He loved him by speaking truth to him, truth which was hard and painful to hear. I think there is an order here I believe we need to note if we are going to be effective gospel ministers if we're going to be faithful disciples and help one another grow in the gospel, I think there's a a model here we must not overlook. We must speak the truth of the gospel. But we must live lives in such a way that we earn the right to speak by engaging and loving people. I, I feel we far too often, maybe even in my own heart, maybe I want to speak before I've actually seen the person, before I've actually observed the person in their life. Before I actually know what's going on in their life and learn their story and who they are and what they're struggling with. And, it's, and have I done that? And then in an act of love, I want to give them the truth of the gospel. I think there's a model here. Looking, seeing, loving, speaking. I need to learn from Jesus here. Now, why would Jesus say this? What, what is exactly is Jesus doing here? Why would he call this man to give away all his riches? Are riches somehow bad? Are rich people necessarily unjust? We kind of hear stuff like that today. Like it's impossible to acquire wealth without doing injustice and stepping on people? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. Jesus knew, despite this man's external, despite his. Fulfilling the external commands of the law in his religion, Jesus knew he had a heart problem. He knew that sin is not just actions we commit. It's a disposition we possess. Materialism occupied the throne of this man's life, not God. Jesus knew this man was living in perpetual breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other God before you, before me. This man's wealth was his God. It was his priority. He had great treasure on earth which prevented him from the helpless childlike dependence that Jesus said was necessary to enter the kingdom. He was blinded to his real need. So is Jesus asking all of us to give away all our possessions for the kingdom? No. Not at all. But I need to say this to you. He could be commanding it of some of you. What Jesus demands from everyone in this room is that to enter the kingdom, we must put away our false gods. As one author says, whether it be possessions, position, power, a person, or passions. You shall have no other god before me, the first commandment says. And this man most assuredly did. Tim Keller says, comments on this verse, when Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the Father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. So I want to ask you this morning, are you willing to lose yourself? It's not a question, I'm just grasping out of the air. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus just said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, crucify himself, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Following Jesus demands you seeing Jesus as more important than anything in your life. Following Jesus is to prioritize Jesus because of who He is and what He has done for you. So the question that comes off the pages here is this. Who or what has priority in your life? Who or what has priority? priority in your life? It's an essential question. We must answer if we are going to follow Jesus. And the reason for that is because who or what you prioritize is shaping your identity, your understanding of yourself. And the call to the gospel is a call to embrace a new understanding of self. To take up a new identity. To find a new priority. To submit to a new king. You are to receive a new identity in Christ through the gospel. This man understood his wealth and who he was in light of it as more important than Jesus. He was unwilling to prioritize Jesus. He walked away. And it says, saddened and sorrowful though with all his toys with all his possessions. Jesus following Jesus is first a call to embrace a new priority but secondly following Jesus is a call to trust a new to trust a new provision. verses 23 to 27. Now we we should not forget that the disciples are here looking on. And I could just imagine what they're thinking. This guy has it all. He's, He's young. He's successful. He's influential. He's got means. He's got motivation to help us get this Jesus thing off the ground. He's a good guy. He's upright. He's moral. He's a good family man. If there's anyone fit to follow Jesus, it has to be this guy. But they watch Jesus send this guy on his way, saddened and dismayed. I find it interesting. I read an author this week who said that this guy would have been on the fast track to leadership in most of our churches. He's a model that most of us probably would have looked to and said, wow, I want to be like him. He's moral. He has the right outward appearance. He fits the mold in every way in the kingdom of man. But God's economy is much different. God is not concerned with outward appearance. Man made status and achievements. He starts, he tests the heart. And we need to be careful to see through the lens of God's kingdom, not the wisdom of man. In verse 23, it says Jesus looked around at his disciples and said, looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it, it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> Again, this is not a condemnation of wealth. And the elevation of Wealthy people played key roles in the Bible and wealthy people still do today. Furthermore, as the Scottish poet George MacDonald points out, it is not the rich man only who is under the dominion of things. They too are slaves who having no money are unhappy for the lack of it. The money the one has, the money the other would have, is in each the cause of an eternal stupidity. Jesus' point, Is that wealth can breed a sense of self sufficiency and vain confidence in oneself? Wealth can get you almost everything in this world. You can buy your way into almost any place with money. Wealth can be addictive and deceptive, it allures and it captivates. It says that it can buy you everything. But it also sadly distorts and confuses our true self. It blinds us to our true need. And I want to be clear, there, there is a, a particular application for wealthier people in our culture in this scripture. If you're part of the upper stratosphere, whatever that looks like of wealth... There is a particular application here for you. Your nest egg, your, five, your 401k, your business investments can give you a false sense of self-sufficiency. It can give you a false sense of confidence to stand before God. But also, I want to be very clear today. Jesus' words apply to everyone in this room. Even if you make minimum wage you will earn more money this year than most in the world will ever see. Your cell phone is worth more money than most earn in a year. And on that cell phone, you have instant access to nearly everything. Right? One click of Amazon right now. It's, what time is it? 10 o'clock. If you get it in by 12, you might get it by this afternoon. I've had a taxi cab driver deliver Amazon package. That's how dedicated they are to that. The reality is we all run the risk of distorting and confusing our neediness before the Lord by what we have, by what we graciously have received. So Jesus' words here, they shock the disciples. Verse Verse 24 says the disciples are amazed. In the Jewish worldview... They had their own type of prosperity theology. It's nothing new. Where they equated material success with spiritual blessing. So for this man to have wealth meant God was particularly blessing him. Blessing him in terms of his righteousness. So Jesus' words here really dismantle their whole system of thinking. And the disciples are amazed. But Jesus, as He often does, does not let them off the hook. He takes them deeper by way of an exaggerated illustration to further make his point. Verse 24, And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, Interesting word, right? He just was teaching on we have to become like children. Now he's speaking to the disciples, calling them children. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The thought of trying to squeeze a camel, humping all through the eye of a tiny needle would have been just as humorous, if not ridiculous, to them as it sounds to us. It's impossible. And that's Jesus' point. They get it. It says, They were exceedingly astonished, first amazed, now astonished, and said to Him, Then who can be saved? They respond with logic and reason, given their man-made worldview, I began with saying to us that the kingdom of God comes to us in a confusing way from our man-made thinking, and it does to the disciples as well. If this man, this wealthy, moral, influential, and successful man, who God is blessing, cannot enter the kingdom, then what of us? That's their question. For the second time, verse 27, it says, Jesus looked at them and spoke to them. With man it is impossible, but not for God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus stares down the disciples with his piercing gaze of grace and mercy and responds with really one of the greatest theological truths in the Word of God. A theological truth which defines Christianity. That salvation is not an accomplishment of man. Left to ourselves, we will never make it into the kingdom. It's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. Get your kids out and say, Kids, We're going to take a camel and we're going to stick it through the eye of a needle and they'll tell you how ridiculous that is. We will never inherit eternal life. Salvation has always been and will always be an act of God's divine provision in and through the gospel. This is the message of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation. You want to know what the the purpose of the Bible is? It's not to give us instructions for living merely. It's not to provide us history merely. It's not a book concerning ethics merely. The Bible uses history. It uses law. It uses ethics for one purpose and one purpose alone. To proclaim that salvation belongs to the Lord alone solely through the work of Jesus Christ. The the reason on every page of this Bible... What is supposed to come to the surface is we can't do it. God can. He's the only one. You begin in the garden with the fall. And we hear there that there is going to be a second person, male, plural, singular male. He will crush. He says, I will crush his head. He will bruise. His heel. Right? That's the promise. So there's someone coming who's going to fix what just happened in the garden. And the story begins. And Noah, man, this is the guy. He rises to the surface. Noah gets drunk, exposes himself, and you recognize right away it's not Noah. The story continues on and on. Abraham, he's the one. Abraham's son, he's the one. We continue going on. David, King David, is the one. No, Solomon is the one. We get to the end of the prophets. And the Bible ends, the Old Testament ends, with 400 years of silence. And then that silence is broken by this crazy dude, John the Baptist, wandering around eating locusts and honey. But he says something. He's a prophet. He says, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. This is the narrative of the Bible. Psalm 62, 7 says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. Isaiah 43, 11. I, I am the Lord and besides me there is no salvation. Hosea 13.4 But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me and besides me there is no Savior. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hated one another. Interpretation. With man, salvation is impossible. That's the interpretation. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's the language again in the text. Revelation 7. Here's the the declaration that echoes in the throne room of heaven throughout eternity. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. And what are they saying? Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With man it is impossible to be saved. Salvation is not... An accomplishment of man. It cannot be earned or achieved. It cannot be bought or bartered for. It must be received. And the reason for that is simple. The problem is too deep. It's not an education problem. It's not an ethics problem. It's a heart problem. It's a sin problem. It's a distortion of our will. God must act on our behalf. It must be received. With man it is impossible to be saved, but with God all things are possible and anyone can be saved. Following Jesus is the call to trust in a new provision. Before coming to Christ, you trust in something or someone to save you. You have a Savior. If you're not a Christian this morning, you have a Savior. You believe there is something or someone who will save you. Typically, it's ourselves. Our achievements. What we have not done. What we have done. Everyone in this room understands their provision for salvation to come from somewhere. The question is, is your understanding of your provision for salvation the same as what the Bible says? For Christ to be the Savior of your life, you must replace what you have looked for for salvation. You must have a new provision. You must understand that salvation is outside of me. And you must look to Christ and turn to Him for that work. Salvation is not an accomplishment of man. It's a provision from God alone. So following Jesus is secondly a call to trust a new provision. And thirdly, following Jesus is a call to believe a new promise. Now our boy Peter here does not disappoint. He's He's our guy. So... If you make bonehead decisions and bonehead statements a lot, there is hope for you in the kingdom. Peter is there. He's the rock upon which... <laughs> so, Our boy Peter never disappoints. He always has something to say. Verse 28. He blurts out another bold and seemingly silly uninformed statement. But is it? It certainly seems that way at first, right? It seems like Peter... But Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter. And we know Jesus has no problem rebuking Peter. He's called him Satan before. He's called, he'll rebuke him. He doesn't rebuke him here. Jesus actually takes what Peter says and he expands upon it. And he teaches us through it an important lesson concerning the promise of the gospel, the promise of the kingdom. Peter, verse 4 in verse 28, See, we have left everything and follow you. Jesus doesn't rebuke him here. He goes on to affirm, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There's a glorious kingdom promise here for anyone in this room who's willing to embrace it. Believe it. But I think we must understand exactly what Jesus is promising. First, following Jesus will cost you. You may have to give up precious things. Homes, family relationships, lands. It will cost you to follow Jesus. Any presentation of Christianity which says it does not cost you something you must run from. The call of the gospel is a costly one. Jesus says there is a price to following Him. But Secondly, and far more importantly, the blessings outweigh the losses. The economy of heaven is far different, far greater than the economy of this world. There are no bad investments in terms of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Himself promises that whatever loss you experience in this life will be far outweighed by what you gain. But notice what He says in verse, the end of verse 30. A little phrase there. Persecutions. And again, this is one of those sobering statements. The sobering reality for the person who would follow Jesus. You have to count the cost. To be a member of Christ's kingdom means you share in the life of Christ. Which included suffering, rejection, and persecution. And the call is that it may require it of us as well on behalf of Him and for the sake of the gospel. But you will be rewarded with much more. You will be superabundantly rewarded with more than you can ask or think. In verse 31, Jesus again reminds us of the upside down reality of the kingdom through his repeated phrase here. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. There's a call. The call to follow Jesus is a costly one, it will cost you your identity. It will cost you considering what is the priority of your life. Jesus has to be that place. He's God. There is no other. It will cost you your identity. It will cost you your priority. And it could cost you everything, Jesus says. And this may seem to outsiders... As though you've made a really poor decision. A really stupid decision. But in Christ's kingdom, there is a a grand reversal of every earthly standard of position, rank, and importance. God does not evaluate things in the same way fallen humanity does. Go to Revelation 5 and see who's around the throne. The martyrs.